But I also believe that for the continent itself to be able to gain a foothold in a lot of these global conversations, we first have to approach the conversation as one body. Hello everybody and welcome back to Media Voices. We take a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. So, <laughs> to begin with, I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that clip you just heard was from this week's interview with David Adeliki. He's a creator of the Communique newsletter and looks at media and technology in Nigeria, where David's based and in Africa more broadly. My big question for David was, is it actually useful to talk about African media or do we need to get country specific? Uh, we talked about podcasts and paywalls and print and of course I asked him about Facebook. Well, that leads very neatly onto our top story for this week. And I, before we begin, I just want to check <laughs> with the two of you, which one of you has Facebook and platforms for this year's Media Moments report? You. Uh, oh you God! <laughs> <laughs> right, it's well, normally gonna... me, but it's normally me. But you shotgunned it this year. Oh God! Why did I do that? Well, I'm not going to be able to, guys. Just so you know, I'm not going to be able to fit it in in the word count. So uh, <laughs> we could have filled an entire report with just the news from Facebook this week. Well, I know we said a couple of weeks ago that we were expecting more to come out of these Facebook files, but I was expecting, you know, just the odd story or two, not an entire consortium of 40 publishers, like, <laughs> dropping on this. But you can't talk about this without skipping forward to Friday. Or when was it? Friday? Thursday? All right, Thursday. Christopher Nolan, why Thursday. are we doing this in media res stuff? The, the, you have to see what happened at the end through the, <laughs> through the lens of what they were trying to achieve, which is hide what started at the beginning. Okay, all right. So That's a total distraction exercise. <laughs> so on Thursday then, Facebook had its long-awaited rebranding event. It went all in on the metaverse by rebranding itself as meta. It's not long-awaited. They announced it like three weeks ago. <laughs> Well, when the yeah, first no, but... Stri- exactly, exactly. They've been announcing little bits of it every time some crap has hit the fan. <laughs> yeah, Oculus is being renamed. Uh, Facebook itself is staying much the same with all the problems that comes with that. I think but... all the apps are staying the same. Mm-hmm. So then to what was this a reaction? Why did Facebook choose now to distance itself from the Facebook name? So what came out on Monday? So it was just, it was just sort of joint publication of more of these Facebook papers, which actually turns out just to be a massive leak of like their internal discussions. It, it, it was one of those days where like, I think two or three publications actually published lists trying to keep up with what was coming out. Like mm-hmm. there was so much coming out. Um, and like, you know, Axios have, have sort of done a live list of the Facebook papers and, and what's come out. The, the one that really stood out for me, did, did you two see the Washington post piece about mm-hmm. the, um, the the emoji reaction so the washington post um did this piece that basically looked at um when facebook introduced reactions back in sort of 2017-18 um they they ran them for a little bit and then in 2019 decided to wait them so an angry reaction or a love reaction was worth five likes and yeah a couple of people sort of internally were like "Mm, this isn't gonna this isn't gonna be good (laughs) I hate um, this. <laughs> and they it's went ahead with it anyway because so growth. 
I know. But it, it, again, it's not surprising. It's just difficult to see it there in black and white. I mean, we've all had these hunches. But yeah, basically, if, if, if you react with something other than a like, you are obviously more engaged and it will therefore show what you've reacted to more people. So if I see a, a, a post about um, vaccine misinformation and I react with anger, it shows that to all my friends. And it's like it, they found overwhelmingly that the, people, the stuff that people were reacting angrily to was misinformation, hate speech, all the unpleasant things that are going on. Anyone that and knows it was anything about it. human beings would know that that was an issue. Yeah. Well, that's been sort of the what's been, I suppose, disappointing from a pundit's kind of point of view here is this idea that people have been speaking about this as though Facebook invented that kind of incentive to have overly emotive, kind of very polarized reactions to things. Whereas that's existed before. It's just that Facebook has kind of weaponized it, has gained it. Yeah, that's the point. Facebook has exploited it for commercial gain. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's other stuff within the leaks which is pretty terrifying. <laughs> that was the most, that was the most defeated uh-huh I think we've ever had on this podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, other stuff that came out from the leaks: the, this idea that Facebook is now for old people, and I'm including yeah. myself in that because I'm over thirty. Yeah. So it's, they can't attract people under thirty. There's so, a there's a brilliant chart I saw from Axios that they that they'd done this sort of poll of teens in the US about who'd got various accounts, 2% of teens have an actual Facebook account, which, you know, if, if you're a Facebook exec and you're looking at that, like, I, I think most of them have Snapchat or Instagram, um, and you're looking at that and you're just thinking, oh, heck, how on earth do we attract young people? But Zuckerberg announced this earlier in the week before the Meta rebrand. He said, you know, we're going to completely turn the platforms around and focus them on young people, which given most of the, like, the majority <laughs> of their user base is now old, is really rude. <laughs> also, also, the, the, he clearly positioned that press conference for the young people you know to be so cool oh, so cringy though involved. as an under 30 person it was very cringy I, I believe me as a it. as a well over 30 person it was even <laughs> fucking worse as peter mentioned before this is effectively a dump of internal comms from facebook so why i suppose why does that matter what's the reaction to the fact that this is effectively internal memos and docs and i suppose just leaks from its own internal messaging board Okay, so, so I, I know you two have opinions on this one, but um, <laughs> I'll just put... So Casey Newton uh, published an interview with a Facebook employee this week, um, and this employee was sort of saying... It wasn't like, Nick Clegg, was it? <laughs> pretending to be someone else. Um, they sort of said that basically a lot of uh, these Facebook papers are based on a lot of the chats in the workplace platform. Um, and I'll just say for anybody that's used Slack, I, I can totally get behind the sentiment of this, is that a lot of posts are from people that... Um, perhaps necessarily aren't involved with those products and are just reacting to announcements. Um, and uh, so one, one of the quotes is that um, these are being described as Facebook papers and Facebook files and leaks documents, but the right way to understand them for the most part is that they're posts and comment threads. And this person says that, you know, the hyper collaborative culture driven by workplace is probably alien to a lot of people who don't understand that this, you know, people will pitch in on anything and everything. Anyone can post anything about anything at any time and their post might be bad or good or badly thought out. The person might have little or nothing to do with what they're posting about, but their opinions are now being used as though they're the decision makers in that in that context. And I, I do understand, it doesn't justify it, but I do understand it. Utter, 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 utter shite. <laughs> Baby, yeah. Um, so, okay, Peter, what's your objection to that? Oh, yeah, I get it. I get that it's all chat inside, but that doesn't change the 
actual facts that are being unearthed in this. There was a process that someone decided that an angry emoji is worth more than a like. Mm. And and if that's just people talking about that, it's because they're fucking human beings, not <laughs> robots who are only focused on engagement metrics. You know, the other things that um, are mentioned uh, about the difficulties they have policing information abroad, Zuckerberg himself took the decision to censor information from dissidents in Vietnam because he was so focused on international growth. The, meanwhile, no one gives a shit about the Rohingyas in Myanmar, so there's all sorts of genocide going on. It's just bullshit that to say that, oh, well, guys, we were just kind of, we were just spitballing in this thing. <laughs> Fuck off. His, I, th- I did see it got pointed out quite a few times this week that for a, a number of countries... Facebook is effectively the internet. So right. No, sorry, sorry to, sorry to jump in, Chris, but that David in, t- in this week's interview says exactly that. Mm. And um, we got to, we got into a conversation about me approaching this from a position of privilege, mm-hmm. which is very, so I'm all the stuff I've said before, notwithstanding, you're absolutely right. Because, there's parts of the world, Myanmar's probably a good example, where Facebook is the internet. Sorry, mm-hmm. sorry to cut in like that. No, no, absolutely. That was really useful. Um, I think it illustrates my point better than I was going to. But this, but this I... is the thing, like, like one of the things that did come out, and again, it's not surprising, but it it it, it did, it was put out there, is that they've Facebook essentially split elections around the world and what was going on around the world into tiers and they were like right you know the US election is tier zero we're gonna like fo- we're gonna have war rooms on that we're gonna have like loads of people focused on policing all the stuff around that you know there sort of, were elections below that and then for the rest of the world they were basically like we just don't care they're not important enough to get the same treatment around disinformation and when you've got the the, the fact that Facebook is such a big part of people's lives over there they, they almost need more yeah more, more, more policing is perhaps not the right solution, but they, well, they need protection. more attention, more protection. Yeah, not not just oh yeah, you know, you're tier five. We're not going to bother with any resources for you. So but you, at that point, if you've got Facebook in the position of some sort of like gatekeepers of the entire internet, are they responsible for monitoring elections around the entire world? It's. But that's the, but, that's the unintended consequence, and that's the thing that I think people have rightly pointed out they didn't pay enough attention to in the early days. It was driven by this growth, this meaningful social interaction above all else, and didn't think about this. There was nothing in place, and so they're trying to retrofit kind of rules and regulations on something that was never designed for this, mm. which is do where we all think, the problems have come from. Do we think they've learned their lesson that the metaverse will be no. paradise? Absolutely <laughs> fucking not. Well, yeah. I mean, that goes back to this was a distraction. This was a yep. a reaction to kind of all this news. They they don't have anything tangible to show. Even what they announced for Oculus, which is a platform that they've had for years and years and years, was stuff that is coming down the pipe. It's not stuff that is ready to deploy now. So, yeah, I think this is just this is a statement of intent that I think Zuckerberg is going to try. He thinks it's going to change people's opinions. I don't think it's going to turn around that that trend for young people not signing up for Facebook or getting involved with meta products. Well, there's, the, there's the, an, sorry, I was going to say the day after what was trending was delete Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there was, there was something quite interesting that um, Corin Podger pointed out that um, th- this vision he's got, certainly at the moment, is actually hugely inaccessible to a lot of the world. Yeah. 
um, you know, to, to get into this metaverse, you're going to need quite expensive devices. Um, you, you're going to need to be in a position of privilege where you don't need to worry about um, focusing on eating or exercise or fresh air or jobs or now, anything. I do like want to point out you can exercise in VR. Are they just going to go and focus there. on that development rather than what they've unleashed on the rest of the world? That, okay, what, and that's yeah. my big thing about this is like, did, at any point did he address all the others? Not in this disaster that's going on. But that's what Frances Hagen was saying. She was saying that you know if they can find ten thousand developers across Europe to concentrate on the metaverse platform, platform, why can they not find a fraction of that? to concentrate on actually solving some of those endemic issues which are having real world consequences. Okay, yep. so there's 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 an underlying slightly more concerning point to all of this which is that most normal people really don't care. Yeah. Um that I you know yep. my my I asked my parents are possibly not the best statistical example here but you know they're, I'd say they're fairly normal. Um I asked them yesterday if they'd heard anything about any of the revelations earlier in the week and they were like no. Um, they'd vaguely read something about the meta rebrand, but they didn't sort of really understand what it was. And I, mm. I explained to them a little bit about some of what was going on. And you know, I said, "Does that, you know, does that change your opinion of being on Facebook?" And they were like, "Well, <laughs> not really." But but his thing, it's not for people; it's for posters. And you know, the three of us are posters. We post stuff all the time. We've got posters brain. We can't get away from it. <laughs> you know, that's just who we are now. But so I've, I've this, seen so many people commenting that, oh, this is, you know, this is this is going to cause like a moral flood off the platform, and so I, I just, I don't think, not like non-media people understand. Like, there's so almost so much come out. It's it's overwhelming for anybody that's not in media to try and work out what's gone on. Well, even the the share price tanks for a couple of days, and then it comes straight back. Mm. And again, it's it's, pro- pri- it's privileged to be able to say, oh yeah, I'm going to leave Facebook. Well, jolly good if your life doesn't revolve around it. A lot of people now do. I don't think it's about changing, about leaving Facebook anyway. I, you know, it's about fixing Facebook. Uh, you know, people should be careful because Facebook is fucking up civil society all over the world. And that someone somewhere has got to address it. Have you watched the, oh God, the documentary, Four Hours at the Capitol? No. Oh my God, it is the most terrifying piece of television I think I've ever watched. Mm. Now, you can't blame Facebook for all of that, but it is absolutely terrifying. The whole QAnon nutcases, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers. It's just a scary piece of television. Why do all these twats decide that they need the most evocative names? It, it, you, honestly, it should just be like you. You hear somebody who's got like, like an organization called Thunderstrike, and you just go forget also, it. Make why it legal. is it always men. white men screaming? <laughs> oh, I'm exhausted, and I'm actually more angry than I've been on an episode of this podcast for a very long time. And now the news in brief. <laughs> uh, anyway, News Corp, New York Times, Gannett, DMGT, Reach, and Future have all staged a fairly impressive comeback on the stock market. Press Gazette has done some work putting together the numbers and if you have, sorry, I'm stumbling on this because there's numbers involved. So during the pandemic, they lost collectively more than a quarter, 26%. But now they bounce back and they've got a combined value of $34 billion. And that's up 
almost 80% on where they were at the end of 2019. So that's a comeback, yeah? Also in some good news after all that um, that Facebook stuff, um, publishers are actually seeing increases in advertiser requests around climate and sustainability coverage, according to Digiday. So the BBC has seen up to two thirds of advertiser briefs containing a sustainability element, while the FT has seen a tenfold increase in uh, climate related proposals year over year. So that's good. There's actually kind of commercial money following the impending apocalypse. <laughs> Well, yeah, the big question on this is, will it last? <laughs> and when it comes to gender equality, the news industry continues to be unrepresentative. That's a shocker. Um, but an update from Pointer around its gender gap tracker shows that around only around 30% of quotes in US newspapers are from women. I suspect it's not much better in the UK either. Fact, you know what might help this? You know what might help it? Go on. Esther started a new news- newsletter. <laughs> Shameless plug that. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's not going to move the needle much on the US newspaper. But it will coverage. highlight the work of women. <laughs> this, this last story. I, this this story could be an NFT for us because we it feels like we're just replicating it all the time. <laughs> I feel like I've seen this story 15 different ways, but it's all a different brand. Mm-hmm. Anyway, The Economist has created an NFT. Non-fungible token. Repto themed Alice in Wonderland September cover. Now, I mean, the nice part of this is, and I think a few publications have done this. They auctioned it for charity. Uh, the winning, the winning bid was ninety nine point nine ether Ethereum. Is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, which is about three hundred thousand pounds. I actually own twenty five quids worth of Ethereum. Is it is it people that inv- invested in crypto early and have they got stupid amounts of money in order to Some try and inflate them, yeah, the rest yeah. of the market? Also, you know, our our investment is flaky like that, right? People buy stuff because it's trending or cool or whatever. It's an investment. My my twenty five quids worth of Ethereum is worth twenty six pounds sixty three in a fortnight. Wish I had a hundred thousand. This week's guest is creator of the Community Newsletter, David Adelike. I asked David how useful it is to talk about African media and about the differences across the continent. We got into the popularity of specific formats, also the importance of mobile data. But first, I asked David about his background and his inspiration and ambitions for the Community Newsletter. So I started my, my career as a, a blogger in 2013, I was still in the university then, I, January 2013, I remember exactly where I was sitting and what exactly what I was thinking about when I decided to sign up on Gmail and open a blogger account and start writing. I had been writing for a while, but mostly for myself. And so I thought, I think it's about time I start putting out my, my writing online just to see what people think and maybe to... At that time, I just wanted to inspire people. Now, not anymore. I, I, I'm not very <laughs> concerned about who I'm inspiring. Um, but at the time, I just wanted to be able to inspire people with the things I was reading, the things I was learning. So I opened that blog, 2013. I ran that blog for three years. Between 2013 and 2016, when I shut down the blog, I started a career in tech. In, the, in tech. Um, so I first was a social media manager or a, co- a content marketing associate for an accounting tech startup. Then I moved into tech journalism, and then I moved into business journalism, and then I became an editor. And then from edit- 
um, being an editor, I moved into corporate communications. But I moved into corporate communications because I wanted to be able to still do some form of journalism without, um, as you well know, the media, the media industry is, is struggling globally right now in terms of monetization. So I wanted to still be able to do the thing that I loved without having to worry about how I would feed myself or now how I would feed my family. So it was, it was a bit of killing two birds with one stone. I dis, so I decided to move into corporate communications and then my journalism is in form of media analysis. So that's, that's how we, um, we came in contact with each other through uh, my work at, um, on communicate. My inspiration for co- communicate is to, as I put in my manifesto, the first, the first edition of the newsletter is to raise the level of conversations that we have, um, within and around the media. At that time, I was focusing on Nigeria, but over time, I started to see the possibility of media analysis for Africa. And I say that knowing fully well the irony, you are just one person living in one country, um, in an entire continent, and then you want to write about the entire continent. Um, I get that, but I also understand that a lot of the um, challenges that we face, especially in media and digital ecosystem in general, they are, ma- they are very similar. They are similar problems. And so the more I wrote about um, the media in Nigeria, the more I talked to people outside Nigeria, the more I realized, okay, this is something that should actually expand um, across the continent. So that's what I've been trying to do. Uh, and my ambition for Communicate generally is to make it, is to build it into a standalone publication that analyzes different sectors of the creative economy. So now I'm focusing on media, digital economy, and tech. Eventually, I will do something around marketing and advertising. And, you know, as, as I mean, as, as, as the spirit leads, eventually some other um, um, verticals will open up. But that's, that's the way I'm thinking about it. And in, in its current form, it's a newsletter. But it's not always going to be just a newsletter. Eventually, it will morph into other things. Interesting. You say, you say about African media a little bit what I was thinking. You know, I knew I was coming on to talk to you and I thought, oh, African media. And I thought, is there such a thing as African media? We think of Africa from over here in the West. We think Africa is one place. And that's just the most ridiculous notion ever. I agree. Uh, does it bother you when people like me say that? Well, it bothers me and it doesn't bother me. It, it, it bothers me because when people say it in such a way um, as to distill the understanding of an entire continent into a single story. That's when I have a problem with it. But when I understand people say African media, uh, and I say African media because I understand that there is diversity within the continent, but I also believe that for the continent itself to be able to gain a foothold in a lot of these global con- uh, conversations, we first have to approach the conversation as one body, right? So as Africa, Africa is made up of many countries, but it's still one continent. And we have many similarities, a lot of differences, but a lot of similarities as well. So if we approach the conversation from the standpoint of our similarities to say, this is how we are coming to the table, recognize that we are coming as one entity with many faces, so if we talk about African media as a starting point and then from there get country specific? Yes, that's a very good, a good way to think about it. So from your point of view, you're reading about Western media all the time. That just that must leave you trying to compare what is going on 
uh, in the media in Nigeria, but also in Africa more generally, with what's going on elsewhere. Is is that a valid comparison? To be quite frank, it is because if I mean it's 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 simple, right? If everyone or if the loudest voices are talking about a certain topic all the time, it's difficult to not in some way want to compare yourself to that topic or to the subject of that conversation. Do you understand where I'm coming from? So it makes sense if when I'm thinking about African media, sometimes, and many times to be quite frank, I think about it in comparison to Western media because Western media dominates the conversation. So it's it only makes sense for me to say, yes, I know that you guys talk about this thing a lot, but you should always, you should also think about it from this perspective. And this is the perspective I am offering as someone who lives on the continent, who lives in one country on this continent of 54 um, countries. This is my perspective that I'm offering. So that's how I think about it. So from that perspective, some of the things that we talk about a lot, I'd, l- I'd love to get your perspective if I can ask you. So podcasts, for example, we talk about podcasts in the West so much. How are podcasts seen in Africa or in Nigeria? It's very interesting that I'm currently... Um, a member of a team called the African Tech Roundup. It's one of the organizations that I that I work with. And essentially, it's a tech insight and analysis platform. And the way we present our tech, our insight and analysis is through podcasts. And I can see from the back end that there is a lot of hunger for analysis and insight through podcasts. So it's not necessarily that maybe podcasts are not gaining, and this is something that I wrote about in a previous essay, whether podcasts can scale in Africa. Podcasts can scale in Africa. They can, but it matters what the podcast is about. It matters how the podcast is presented. So there's a lot of interest around podcasts. I, for example, am an avid uh, podcast uh, consumer. I listen to a lot of podcasts. When I'm driving to the office in the morning, I'm listening to podcasts. Sometimes when I'm coming back, I'm listening to podcasts. Sometimes I wake up um, during the weekend, I'm listening to podcasts. So there is there is a market for podcasts here. And some of the most famous podcasts on the continent, there's I Said What I Said. It's run by um, two ladies. It's really big. And there used to be a podcast called the Loose Talk Podcast focused on pop culture in Nigeria. It was really big um, in its prime. There are a few other podcasts. There is the African, uh, African Tech Roundup Podcast. There is the Flip Africa. So there are a lot of options. Um, when we talk about podcasts on the continent. But in comparison, again, because this is the loud this is the loudest voice in the conversation, it's difficult to not compare um, to that voice or the, to that topic. In comparison to the West, yeah. it's not yet at a level where it can be. Mostly because maybe the way um, we use um, mobile phones or the way we consume content in this part of the world is a little different from the way, um, say, people... In, in America or maybe in Canada, primarily consume their content. Um, for example, we think about audio. Radio is still very big here, right? Traditional media is still very big here. In fact, mm-hmm. traditional media spend is still bigger in Nigeria, at least, than digital media um, and ad spend. So that just puts things into perspective. It's we are at the beginning. We're at the beginning, but yep. there's still a long way to go. So another one we talk about all the time in, in, in the West is reader revenue, subscriptions or paywalls. Is that a thing? I, I know a few publications and media platforms that are trying to build 
the subscription model. I personally am not entirely convinced that subscriptions can work in this part of the world. And uh, again, this is another topic I've written about in the newsletter called this, this essay is the subscription playbook. And the point I make is if you're going to build a subscription business, then you're asking people to choose between, in many, in many cases, you're asking people to choose between uh, the basic necessities of life <laughs> and then um, you pay for data. Data is expensive and then you ask them to pay for access to your content. Um, so there are many, there are many more layers. Um, before you can start to ask people to pay for, pay for, um, pay you for your content. So most times people just go through the sponsorship, partnership or the advertising route because it's, it's just easier and it makes it, um, more likely that people will discover or consume your content. But once you put up a paywall, you're going to exclude a large majority of your audience. And I'm not quite sure the majority, the, the minority that remains is enough to sustain a media business. So if data is expensive, are things like social video popular, you know, TikTok or Very Instagram? Yeah. Is that all accessed through through mobile? Yes. So we're largely a mobile first uh, audience or mobile first market. The mobile, the, mobile uh, the, the ratio between mobile and desktop or laptop usage is, is skewed in favor of, of mobile. So most people access the internet first via their phones and so social video is big here. Yeah. Sorry, I've I've phrased that wrong. What I really meant was is it through mobile data rather than Wi Fi? Oh yes. Yes, 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 yes. Wi Fi is oh my goodness, Wi Fi is um is a lot more expensive than so I'll I'll use my let, let me use myself as an example. Right? I subscribe to mobile data and I pay for Wi Fi. I pay fifteen thousand naira for um Per month to my my ISP, and fifteen thousand naira is. I mean, I don't know what the conversion is in dollars, but in comparison, and that's for unlimited. It's it's unlimited. There is no FUP. Um, but for my mobile data, I pay five thousand, and that gives me access to about fifteen gigabytes. For my phone, that's that's fair because I'm, I'm mostly I'm mostly connected to the Wi-Fi, so I don't even use up my my fifteen gig. But it just gives you the um, <laughs> the disparity between mobile and Wi-Fi. So in a sense, anything like uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, TikTok, those things are likely mm -hmm. to be more popular because they are primarily mobile apps? Exactly, exactly. Yes. So it's WhatsApp. I've seen a few uh, a few articles about WhatsApp publications that are running in Africa. Is that something that's that's common? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's not common. There is only one publication that I know of right now. There may be others that I don't know about, but that I know of, and which is also the subject of my next uh, essay. It's called the Continent, and the Continent primarily reaches its audience via WhatsApp and Signal. So yeah, and they send links to people for people to download, people read up and then they share with their friends. That's how that works. In Zimbabwe, for example, WhatsApp is the primary um, way through which people access the internet. So in some countries, for example, it's Google. Google is the first point of contact between the user and the world of the internet. In some countries, it's Facebook. In Zimbabwe, it's 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 WhatsApp. How are people feeling about Facebook these days? To be honest, I'm not I'm not seeing 
a lot of the indignation against Facebook in the West replicated here because this market is largely utilitarian. It's heavily utilitarian and it's more about what can this platform do for me than it is about anything else. And so far, people find Facebook useful. It's useful for connecting with friends, useful for selling their, their merchandise, useful for making money, for building their businesses, for building an audience. So it's useful. So the indignation against Facebook in the US yeah. is not necessarily the same. It's not necessarily replicated in this part of the world. That's maybe a privileged thing that we've got options, I guess, here. and, and It is. It, it's not maybe. It is a privileged thing, I assure you. <laughs> it is a privilege. Yeah, no, I get it. I definitely get it. I mean, you mentioned selling. Is e-commerce Is e-commerce a big deal? Oh, yes. So there was an era in the, in the, in the technology ecosystem when e-commerce was the big thing. But it stuttered for a little bit because the the platforms that were focused on e-commerce then they were, they were trying to build e-commerce uh, platforms at the time. They didn't really understand the market dynamics. They just wanted to copy what what in the West and just paste it here. But they found now they had way that that was not that was not the way to go. So what you now have is a lot of social commerce. You have um, individual businesses building out their own. Um, online stores and then so for example i'll give you a very good example i have a friend who sells scented candles she has a flutterwave grow page flutterwave is um, one of the biggest fintech companies out of out of this part of the world it's it's a it's a unicorn already it's worth over one billion so flutterwave allows her to have a store online manage a stock online and then when she wants to deliver her items she goes through a a logistics company. So all these steps in the all the steps or the stages of the e-commerce process have been fragmented versus having just one big company um, um, handling all the processes. But we, we do have we have Jumia, we have Conga who try to handle all the processes in the in the stage. But what you find on Jumia for example now is a lot more you have a lot more individual merchants versus Jumia trying to um, trying to house all the merchandise and then dispatch from its warehouses. Now you have a lot more individuals. So Jumia has essentially become an enabler of the process. People go on Jumia, they have their stores on Jumia and then Jumia helps out with the logistics and then they get a fee out of that. That's how um, e-commerce has evolved. But yes, e-commerce is is growing really fast. I mean, that sounds like an Amazon, I, I was going to say clone, which is maybe not fair, but it sounds like an Amazon alternative. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yeah. So then African startups, you talk about unicorns in Africa. Is there a, an independent African sort of startup scene around that sort of technology? Yeah, yeah. It's really big. The technology ecosystem here is really big. And this year alone, the ecosystem has raised a lot of money, billions of dollars in venture um, funding. This was not the case maybe five years, five, six years ago. But when... In, in 2020, I think, Paystack, um, Paystack is a fintech company here, got acquired by Stripe for $200 million. And so once that acquisition happened, people started to see just what was possible. I mean, a lot was already going on in the background before the acquisition. But once that acquisition happened, it was like the light bulb moment for a lot of um, um, global funds to say, 
maybe there is something here that we should explore. And so now a lot more capital is flowing into the ecosystem and that is impacting the quality of ideas, impacting the quality of execution, impacting the quality of talent. You find Nigerian, uh, you find Nigerian developers, for example, becoming so good that they get snapped up by Facebook, they get snapped up by Google. Um, do you understand? So that is happening more frequently now than in the past. So a lot more capital is flowing into the ecosystem and that is just just raising the level of, of 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 the talent and the ideas and even the companies. Do you think that you're going to see more of that kind of inward investment? Actually, I've got a bigger question for you. Do you think that's a good thing? It's a good thing. It's it's net positive. I mean, it, it comes with its drawbacks, right? But it's net positive because a lot of these companies are financed at the angel or the early stages by angel investors. And those angel investors are founders or executives who have worked in these global companies before. Some of the most prolific angel investors are people who have worked in maybe um, Facebook, Google, McKenzie, even in startups here that have grown so big and that they're making a lot of money. So they're able to put back money into the ecosystem. So in the long run, it's a positive because that just it just increases the quality and the quantity of ideas that come out of this ecosystem and the quality and quantity of talents that come out of the ecosystem. If you look at publishing, specifically in publishing, my background is obviously magazine. Are there other Western publishers that are looking at Africa? Do you see, you know, the likes of Condé Nast or Hearst? There are Western publications or Western media companies that have taken interest here. One of the biggest examples is um, BBC. You know, BBC, we have BBC Africa. BBC Africa is big here. It's big here. You have um, CNN. CNN is also, in fact, one of CNN's, um, newest star correspondence is from Kenya. His name is Larry Madowo. Snapped him up from, from the BBC. Uh, you have Quartz. My friend is my friend is Quartz's West Africa correspondent. I have a friend who used to be Ozzy's um, Ozzy Media's um, correspondent in Africa editor. You know, they ha- we have the Africa Report, which is based in Paris, that also is you know is largely focused I mean, the name it, as the name implies, it's largely focused on the continent, even though it's based in, in Paris. I mean, it's a little bit more um, global facing with its with its distribution. You have um, rest of world. You know, rest of world has its um, has correspondence here. So you have a, a Bloomberg also. Bloomberg has a lot of um, reporters and correspondents out of this part of the world. The same thing with the Guardian UK. So you have a lot of these Western media companies realizing that they they need to invest in reporting from this part of the world. My only real exposure is to Media24 in South Africa. I went to see those guys a couple of years ago. And, you know, they do a lot of stuff in South Africa. But I wonder if someone's working in South Africa or if they're working in Nigeria, are they likely to publish in other African countries? Yes and no. Not a lot of... So there's not a lot of cross-country collaboration, at least not enough of it as, as there should be. So most of the time you have publications focusing on the markets that they are located in. But then there are, there are other publications, especially the tech publications, they try to be more regional with their coverage. I try to be more regional, regional with my coverage because I realize we have to talk to each other more. Right? We have to be able to pass insights across um, country borders more often than we currently do. So there are some examples of people doing that, but I don't think there are enough examples of people doing that. I would like to see more examples. 
Is local language a factor? No, it's not. It's I don't think so. I think it's more influenced by the politics of you know, of geography. As 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 much as we would like Africa to be connected, there is a lot of disconnect. I mean, you can even see this with the way the African Union is run. There's just a lot of disconnect between different countries, people not communicating to each other with each other properly. And then there is the economic factor as well. Um, there's just not a lot of money on the continent for media. There are some, there are some very good, successful examples. Some, not a lot. Uh, our last question we ask everyone we ask our guests for a media recommendation what would you recommend to our listeners because i'm from the tech ecosystem sort of i have it i have a bias but if if people if people want to better understand the direction that the continent and the different countries within the continent the direction that they are going they should read more tech Look out tech publications. There's a publication called Tech Cabal, does really good work. There's a publication called Tech Point. There is the African Tech Roundup, all doing really good work. There's um, Tech Wiz. The Wiz is W E Z. There's Tech Central in South Africa, all doing very good work. And there is there is a newsletter that I like to read a lot called the Afri Digest, which essentially collates um, all the best stories about the ecosystem. So. For anyone who really wants to understand the direction that this place is going and then the opportunities there are some of your listeners who might be investors who are saying okay this is something that i'll be interested in then the opportunities on the continent for them to invest those are the publications that they should be looking at and if you want our opinions in your inbox every day rather than just once a week, I mean, who wouldn't? And we actually have a daily newsletter that brings you the four most important stories in publishing and media, plus a little commentary from us. So you can sign up for that on our website, voices.media, or from our Twitter profile, at MediaVoicesPod. And if you do want to support us with our posters' brains and our posters' ambitions, then you can go to our Kofi page. Kofi now has a monthly sub subscription option if you'd like to support us for the next 200 episodes, and you can easily find that by going to voices.media slash support. Uh, from Kofi to coffee. Ah. Esther and I specifically would love to say thank you to Artisan Coffee, keeping us warm in these cold... I was going to say winter mornings, but it's not really winter yet. Anyway, no. in these cold mornings, Esther, what's your favourite? Uh, <laughs> I quite like the... I was going to say heroin, but that makes it sound like... <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like some kind of, some kind of dangerous drug. Um, I'm, I'm very, very fond of the Enigma blend. And finally, uh, just a reminder that the Publisher Podcast Awards entries are now open until December the 10th. So you've got just over a month to get your entries in. Um, yeah, you can find out more about that at publisherpodcastawards.com. Until next week, though, when we'll be back with presumably more Facebook news and another tour uh... through all the news and views from the media world and a fantastic guest. Thank you very much for listening and do stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>